This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Welcome, good morning, good to see you guys. This is the uh, last session of Strange New World. Anyone been to all four sessions so far? Been to every class? Hey, good for you guys. Is anyone, this is their first, first class? Nate, well done, but hey, that's okay, that's okay. Hey, you made it, you're here, so that's excellent. Well, it's good to see you guys, and it has been, it's been such a joy to uh, just be a part of this class and help go through this material. It's been really encouraging just to see the participation to the eagerness to come and learn about what the Word of God says and what it means for this cultural moment. So today, as you see on your outline, uh, kind of have a big, big task, big uh, topic to tackle today, and uh, we're talking about the transgender movement and how to respond to this movement uh, biblically and missionally as we're out and about in our lives. The reason we're doing this is because in uh, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, he ends the book with a reflection on the sexual revolution. So in thinking about how to engage our culture well, there's just no way to not talk about the sexual revolution uh, that's all, all around us. And so in his book, he really focuses in on transgenderism as kind of the focal point of the sexual revolution. In some ways, the most, um, I guess you could say, extreme um, version or kind of the culmination of the sexual revolution. So if you want to kind of understand, yeah, where we're at culturally. Understanding something about the transgender movement is very important. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and how to respond biblically. And also uh, Jeff is going to share at the end of class just kind of a pastoral uh, encouragement for living in the times that we are living in today. So let's begin. Um, In 2015, in a 2015 interview with Diane Sawyer, Bruce Jenner, you guys know Bruce Jenner, declared that he was, in fact, a woman. He defined himself as being transgender. A few months after this, Jenner posed for the cover of Vanity Fair magazine wearing female clothing. The headline read, Call Me Caitlin. Interestingly, I, I read a kind of an interview with the photographer. The uh, pose is quite strange, I mean, for, on multiple levels, but Jenner is standing and his hands are behind his back in the, in the photo. And I was reading about it and kind of wondering, well, why, why, what's going on there? And the photographer in the interview said something along the lines of, well, we could Photoshop lots of things to make Jenner appeared to be a woman, but I didn't know what to do with the large masculine hands, right? And so there's this, there's just this difficulty in what do we do with a man who is calling himself a woman, but still obviously masculine? And I I think more than anything else, when you hear the title of the class, Strange New World, the transgender movement kind of maps onto that nicely, doesn't it? We're, we're in a new world, a strange new world. 
So today we're going to be focusing on this movement, how to, how to understand it, how to resist it, and how to reach our culture awash in it. And I, I just want to remind us before we begin, especially with this topic, there's just many ways we can be tempted to respond. I don't know about you, whenever you, whenever I just began and kind of told that story about Bruce Jenner, in your mind there's anger, fear, confusion. What I want us to have the heart of is responding with wisdom, compassion, and courage, right? We need courage for this moment. Some of us, you know, we, you guys can just come on in and file in. That's just totally okay. We need courage for this moment. And some people, for some people, courage comes very easily. Like, yes, I'm going to take my stand. This is wrong. This is uh, against what God's word teaches. We need to take a stand. For some people, compassion comes very easily, right? You see the brokenness. You want to have a heart to serve these people. What we really need is both. And we need wisdom to know when, how to engage. So the plan for this class is to... Um, talk about that a little bit. Things I won't cover in this class, um, bathrooms, sports teams, pronouns, anatomy, public policy. There's just, with this topic, there's so many things that could be covered. What I really want to do is understand the transgender movement in its own terms and respond to it biblically and theologically. Um, A couple of books that have been helpful to me as I've been preparing, it's of course Strange New World, the text for our class. Uh, if you haven't got this and you're interested in learning more, I would encourage you to read this. Uh, also, this book, God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker. I think this is the single best treatment, at least that I've read, on transgenderism from a biblical viewpoint that really helpfully walks through. Uh, just the movement and how to respond to it biblically. So I, I would really encourage you, if you especially if you have um, maybe transgender family members um, that you're thinking about, okay, how to engage with these people, uh, this, this is a great resource. I would highly recommend it. And then finally, uh, this book, The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favale, I think is how you say that. So she, she's a Roman Catholic, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend everything that's in this book, especially when she gets to Bible interpretation. But uh, she was an ex-gender studies um, scholar and was converted to Roman Catholicism and is now writing kind of in response to the gender confusion that's all around us. And this book's very, very helpful. So, okay, um, we have... 30 minutes or so to walk through a lot. So we'll just begin with our outline. Our outline is read the culture, resist the culture, reach the culture, how we've been kind of doing each class. So we'll begin. Read the culture, understanding transgenderism. It's really three things I want to quickly go through so we can spend time in the biblical text, which is what I really want to do. So three, three points underneath read the culture, understanding transgenderism. One is just some of the history of transgenderism. Two, the vocabulary of transgenderism. And three, the significance. So history, I'm really thinking just some influence, some, some influences, some, um, I guess you could say, currents or kind of streams that f- file their way into this river of transgenderism. Like how did, we, how did we get here? That might be a way to ask the question. So first, uh, expressive individualism. We had a whole class on this two weeks ago. 
but just as review, expressive individualism says basically that the purpose of life is to discover your true self deep within and express that identity outward. That's expressive individualism in a nutshell. The whole purpose of life, the way to find happiness, the way to find the good life is to be yourself. And then everyone else's job is to embrace that identity that you express outward. So just the effects on gender. We, we can't say within this framework, we can't say somebody is wrong. We can't say it's wrong for Bruce Jenner to call himself Caitlin because that's how he feels on the inside. Does that make sense? His, his authority for truth, what's real, what's really real, what is really real for him, for in this movement, it's what's on the inside is really real. So we can see how that has effects for gender and sexuality. And one of the second streams is just the fact that we live in a post-Christian culture. Uh, the influence of Christian teachings declining in the West, lower church attendance, biblical illiteracy, etc., uh, growing, there's growing acceptance of gay and lesbian relationships, declining marriage rates, increasing divorce rates, higher rates of cohabitation before marriage. It's very clear that the biblical teaching on um, gender and sexuality is no longer the norm in our culture. Um, there's a thinker named Aaron Wren who I, I think helpfully, he kind of describes uh, the relationship between Christianity and culture in three ways. He says, well, there's positive world, neutral world, and negative world. And his point is that at one point in history, like in our nation, Christianity was seen as a positive good for society. That's the positive world. And then it kind of shifted to a neutral world where, well, it's, it's okay if you're a Christian, but it's okay if people aren't a Christian. It's not seen as necessary, but it's okay. It's like one idea among many. And he argues that really recently, within the past decade or so, it shifted to a negative world where actually Orthodox Christianity is seen as a, to have a negative impact on society. It's harmful for people to teach what we're teaching. It's just important to know that, that no matter how well-reasoned an argument might be, the perception is that biblical teaching on gender is largely harmful. That's the perception, right? I'm reminded of a quote, I think I have it in your handout, by David Wells. He says that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I think it's an excellent definition of worldliness. It's whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And I, I really think that this, the transgender movement encapsulates that in a nutshell, right? It makes what's abnormal and sinful look normal and righteousness look strange. So if people respond with the fact that, well, the Bible teaches this, that doesn't hold much weight within our culture, right? Because it's seen as in a negative, negative light. Kind of the third historical stream, I guess, um, it's called Gnosticism. So Gnosticism, it's really, I mean, it's an ancient heresy in the church that basically says a physical reality is less important than spiritual reality. 
So it says, like, your physical body, therefore, is not as important as your spirit that's inside you. There's inherent tension between your physical body and your true self that's within. Transgenderism is, in many ways, a modern version of this ancient heresy that there can be a disconnect between what my body says I am and what my true self is on the inside. Does that make sense? Kind of the, kind of the distinction there. So there's this Gnosticism comes from a Greek word that means secret knowledge. The idea that, yeah, I may appear to be a man on the outside, but there's a secret knowledge that nobody else knows that I feel within. And that's what's really true, right? I'm not saying that about myself. I'm just saying, you know, giving that as an example, just to, just to, be, just to be clear here. Okay. Okay. Um, so next, next section, I want to talk a little bit about the vocabulary of transgenderism. There, there's, there's a growing list of terminology that I'm not even begin to kind of scrape the surface off of, that the, the, the amount of letters at the end of LGBTQ just kind of continues to grow. And I don't think it's significant to be, or I don't think it's critically important that, you know, use an everyday Christian in your workplace, at school, wherever, to be just really conversant with every single one of these terms. But I, I've kind of listed four or five that I think are important to understand. Just so as you're having conversation with people, these terms might come up. Uh, so the first one is sex. Um, sex is our biological makeup. So XX chromosomes versus XY chromosomes. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody's sex. It's, it's what your biology says that you are. Every, every person is born male or female. Uh, th there is an anomaly of people who are born intersex where their gender, their sex is not completely clear um, upon birth. Uh, but I think we, we should see that as a sad effect of the fall and not necessarily as an argument against the idea that God creates men and women. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So gender, the next term, if sex is uh, kind of our biological makeup, the, the stuff that makes us up. Gender is the culturally appropriate expression of your sex. And this varies from culture to culture. I was thinking about, um, you know, if, if you're a, a man in ancient Scotland, Scotland, wearing a kilt is masculine, right? It's a cultural expression of being a man. But a man in the United States right now wearing a kilt is not an expression of masculinity. Right? There's different ways from culture to culture that men express their manhood and women express their womanhood. And the important thing is not that the clothing of a skirt or a kilt is necessarily masculine or feminine. The point is that people throughout history have always expressed their sex in some specific way. And the way they've expressed it has always been connected with their biology. So there's a connection between gender and sex. This is the, the main point that transgenderism, the main connection that it seeks to sever. So it says you can have a gender that doesn't line up with your birth sex. 
Does that make sense? But throughout history, that's just been, that's not been the case, right? That our sex lines up with our gender. The next term, gender dysphoria. So the gender dysphoria, I'm getting this from this book, um, God and Transgenderism. The experience of distress for people who have a marked incongruence between the gender associated with their natural sex and their preferred sex. So gender dysphoria is basically the feeling that somebody has. And you hear, heard somebody say, or read somebody say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. There's an incongruence between what I feel is true and what is true. That, that experience um, has been termed gender dysphoria. So there's a, there's a, there's a confusion about who, who I am, who people are. The solution to that today um, is hormone treatment or gender reassignment surgery. So whereas in the past, the, somebody experiencing gender dysphoria might be counseled that their mental state, or their, their psychological state, needs to be brought in line with their, bio, by their, with their biology. Today, it's actually the opposite, where the thought is, okay, if this is who you say you are and feel you are, your biology needs to be changed to meet that internal state. Does that make sense? And so that's, that's gender dysphoria, that feeling of I'm, I'm not at home in my own skin. And then transgender is just someone who acts on gender dysphoria to some degree or another. It may be uh, dressing in drag. It may, be, may mean surgery, may mean treatments. Transgenderism is kind of a big umbrella term of just people who act on this internal feeling of gender dysphoria in some way. And finally, the last, last term I want to talk about for just a second is uh, cisgender and gender binary. So cisgender is just simply people who are not transgender, so the, kind of the natural state of things. But I think it's important to note that the term cisgender was created so as not to make it seem like it's just as normal to be transgender as it is to be um, your sex lining up with your gender. Does that make sense? So, People won't say there's transgender and there's normal gender, but rather there's transgender and there's cisgender. So it's trying to level the playing field. Language is critically important. It, what people try to do with language is level the playing field to say this option is just as normal as this option, right? So we need, we need to be aware of that. And gender binary means the same thing, that you express your gender either as a man or a woman, two, two choices. So I just want to talk for a second about significance, like why, why, why do we need to spend a whole class going over terms like this, history, movements? Um, the, in 2016, the, I think the stats were that like 0.6% of U.S. adults identify as transgender. So are, are we just picking on a group of people that we shouldn't pick on? Like, is it, is it really relevant for us to be doing this right now? I think it is. And the, the reason we need to critically think about this is because questions are going to come to us whether we like it or not. Questions like, can a man become a woman? Can a woman become a man? 
How should children be taught? Right? Children in, in schools where this is perceived as normal. Children just watching television. How, how do we, how, when, should we tell children that gender is binary? And we, we should, but how do we do that? When do we do that? How do we have this discussion? Maybe more personally for some of you, I wonder, how do we speak, how do we speak to family members, friends who feel that they were born in the wrong body? There's, there's a pastoral element to this, a real people sitting across from you. How, how, would, how would I talk to somebody sitting in the front row who says, everything you're saying, I feel that that's true about me. It's, it's, it's nice to talk about it in theory. It's very difficult when it's a real person sitting across from you, right? So how, how do we have that conversation? What do we say to somebody? And even if we never, even if you never meet a transgender person, someone who wrestles with that, the debate still has radical implications for what it means to be a human being, right? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? Does it mean anything to be a man or a woman? Are the two terms interchangeable? And how can we live a fulfilled life even when our desires may contradict what we know we should do? These are all important questions. So what I want to do is uh, take a look at God's Word to see what uh, God's Word says about gender and sexuality. And to do that, I'm just going to look at uh, Genesis 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible and you wanted to open up, you can. Otherwise, I, have, I think I have some of the text printed out on your outline. One, um, one theologian said something like, all good theology begins in Genesis. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. The key, kind of key truth to believe about gender from Genesis 1 through 3, if I had to sum it up, I would say God created us male and female, and that is very good. So God created us male and female, and that is very good. And a key response that we'll talk about in a minute is that we must reject trans ideology and remember mercy. Reject trans ideology and remember mercy. So Genesis 1 um, begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 paints a picture of God as the creator Lord over all things. He, he made all things. He owns all things. He reigns over all things. He is the Lord. And then uh, Genesis 1.1 kind of creates all matter. And then throughout Genesis 1, he orders matter. He orders all the things that he's made in complementary pairs. I don't know if you ever noticed this if you read through Genesis 1. Verse 3 separates day and night. Verse 5, sky and sea. Plants and trees. Sun and moon. Birds and fish. Domesticated animals, so livestock. And then creeping things, uh, reptiles, things that kind of crawl on the ground in the wild. The point, I think, in Genesis 1 is that God's design, part of the beauty of God's design is that there's unity in diversity. There's this one creation, but there's these complementary pairs throughout Genesis 1 that just paint a beautiful picture, almost like different puzzle pieces that fit together 
to form something beautiful that if everything was exactly the same, it wouldn't paint as beautiful a picture. And then in Genesis 1.26, you probably see where we're going. God makes man in his own image, male and female. He created them. Again, kind of the, the apex of creation is a complementary pair, unity, human beings and unity in diversity that show God's creativity and glory. And he says, behold, it is very good. Genesis 2 zooms in on the sixth day. Creation of man of Genesis 1 is kind of a, a um, macro picture of creation, kind of a glorious big picture. Genesis 2 zooms in on the sixth day, on the creation of man. It says, okay, how exactly, how exactly did this work? So Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This verse teaches us that we are created body and soul. Man is made from the dust, from physical stuff, we have a body, but then God breathes into man and makes him a living creature. That term, living creature, doesn't just mean breathing. It, it means more like creature with a soul, right? So man is made both body and soul, which is unique among all of creation. Angels, have, um, angels are spiritual beings, but don't have a body. Animals are physical beings, but don't have a soul in the same way. Only mankind has created both body and soul, and both are critically important. The word, the word formed in this text, that the Lord God formed man, that word is the same word used of a master craftsman at his trade. The idea is that God is like a master craftsman creating men and women, forming them with his wisdom. So why am I emphasizing this? For our discussion, for the importance of kind of responding to the transgender movement, what Genesis 2 teaches is that our bodies are not accidental or inconsequential. Our bodies are handcrafted by God. Our bodies are critical to who we are. Trans ideology says that if your body doesn't fit your internal feelings of yourself, change your body. But God's word says that he's actually designed the body. So to think that way is to say that God has made a mistake or that God has not done what is good. Again, we'll talk about in a second that since we live in a fallen world, it makes sense that some people would feel there, there's an incongruence with what's true within and true without. But we must hold firm that God made our bodies. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. I have the whole text there. I'm not going to read it all for us, but this is the creation of man and woman. If the first thing Genesis teaches us is that man is made body and soul, the next thing is that God, uh, man is made man and woman. So, Genesis 2, 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. Every, everything else has been good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It's the first time Genesis says something is not good. What's not good? It's not good that man 
is alone. And then the Lord caused Adam to fall asleep, took a rib from the man, and then formed woman and brought her to the man. He says that because of this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Again, unity and distinction. I want to read a quote I have on the sheet for you. This is from the book Genesis, uh, Genesis of Gender. It says this, Genesis uniquely foregrounds the importance of the male-female relationship. There is no hierarchy of value, no dynamic of superiority or inferiority. Sexual differentiation is not a mishap, but a cause for celebration and wonder. This difference is good. Our bodies are good, and both are integral to the created order, which is good. Another quote later on. Here is the original order described in the first two chapters in Genesis. In this order, sexual difference is understood and experienced as a gift of fruitfulness and love. There's a dynamic balance between sameness and difference. And the man and the woman have a shared commission, a shared mission to generate life and govern the earth. So what's clear, and I'm glad that Kevin last week touched on the idea of natural law. Um, the idea is it's not just the Bible that teaches us this about man and woman. N- natural law, what's clear from nature, teaches, this, teaches us the same thing. That to generate new life, it's important to have a man's body and a woman's body right? That that's, that's part of God's design, creating us in complementary pairs. So to just say that the body doesn't matter, or that can be, gender is fluid, and we can change things, doesn't just go against what God's Word says. It goes against what nature teaches us as well. So if trans ideology says that our gender is fluid and self-discovered, Genesis 2 says that it's fixed and received by God for His glory and our good. And lastly, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 talks about the fall of man. And I think if we had to ask, well, where does gender dysphoria come from? I I think it's probably unwise to just assume that somebody experiencing this is sort of making it up. That might be some of your uh, sort of intuitions. You hear somebody say this, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or something like that. It's just kind of scoff and just say, well, that's, that's made up. I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's the best way to understand that experience. Where does gender dysphoria come from? I think it comes from Genesis 3, the fall of man into sin, right? When Adam and Eve fell, Creation is cursed. As one author said it, now things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's a great way of thinking about the world and sin. Things aren't how they're supposed to be. This feeling on the inside of I'm not who I'm supposed to be or my my sex is not aligned with my gender, my body's not aligned with who I feel myself to be is an effect of the fall. But the good news for us and for anyone who has that experience is that in Christ, we can be a new creation. Christ comes to make all things new. He comes to change us, and that's good news for us. So the Bible, we see that the Bible's teaching is contrary to trans ideology. So how should we respond 
two quick thoughts, and then Jeff is going to share just a pastoral word of encouragement for us. Remember, or resist the ideology, and remember mercy. There, there really is, so just first, resist the ideology. There, there really is no middle ground between the ideas of transgenderism and what the Bible teaches. Uh, there just, there isn't. You, you can't straddle the fence and kind of have something in between. The two ideas are contradictory. We must teach our children that biblical teaching on gender is normal. The cultural teaching on transgenderism is abnormal. And we must disagree with those who say that the compassionate, the kind thing to do are things like hormone treatment and gender reassignment surgery. We must resist the pull to affirm transgender people in their chosen identity when it goes against what God's word clearly says. But last, we must remember mercy. Like I said at the beginning, I think some people, you know, who may be amening, reject the ideology. That is, that is wrong. That's abnormal. Obviously, who can't see this? We must do that. But also, we must remember mercy. Remember that we live in a fallen world filled with all sorts of disordered desires. People are born with a sinful nature that's not the way it's supposed to be. And we must remember that Christ, when he was in front of the crowds, it says that Christ had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? I, I, I don't know, you know, where things are going culturally or what it means for our church, but I do hope that there's, you know, years from now, there's refugees from the sort of sexual revolution fleeing into our churches because they just see the brokenness, the emptiness of how they're living. And I think when that happens, things could be a little bit messy, right? Things could be, things could get complicated and difficult. But when that happens, we want to have the heart of Christ that says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ loves these people, cares about them, and we should move toward them in love, not away from them in disdain. So may we, may we all have this heart and uh, this understanding as well. So thanks. Now I'm going to welcome Jeff up to come and just give us, uh, give us some thoughts correct everything I said that was wrong, and yeah, you guys will be good to go. Well, speaking on behalf of the pastoral team, um, I hope you found this class uh, informative, clarifying, helpful. Um, this is a topic that appears to have quite a bit of momentum in the current culture's attention, and I suspect it's a topic that's not going to go away anytime soon. And one encouragement that I would want to give to you is that we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, and for you to take time to think carefully about this is a reflection of God has given you grace to pursue after loving him with your mind. And that's, uh, that's time well spent. Uh, and so I, I, I want to encourage you for that. Uh, I think the categories that, that, uh, that Drew has, has uh, led us in well, um, read, resist, and reach, are, are very, very good ones. They, they guide us and organize our thoughts and strategies. 
beyond our merely recoiling um, in response to this thing that, that really is surprising, even shocking at times that we see. Uh, like Carl Truman's grandfather, uh, it can take us aback um, that some of these things are being touted as mainstream and perfectly legitimate. But we want to do better than just recoil. Um, we want to respond like the Lord would have us respond and to be the salt and light in the world that we're called to be. So it's one thing to have good categories to think through and doctoral positions to hold to and so forth. But as Drew mentioned, uh, what happens when um, folks who are embracing these kinds of ideas come into our church? Uh, what happens when you find them in your neighborhood? What happens when you find these folks who have embraced some of these ideas in your family, when this really comes face to face with you? And it's a, it really ends up being a pastoral question that I think we're going to be more and more likely to encounter. And so I wanted to give you a few things to consider. Um, the first is I want to encourage your engagement with these folks as is appropriate. Uh, there's kind of a grid that we will often talk about in biblical counseling circles that, that talks about moving toward people or moving away from people. And there's a good and bad version of each of those. And I think it can be uh, kind of helpful. So uh, it goes something like this. Um, I'll, I'll start with moving away from people. And th there's a good version of moving away from people that has to do with discerning whether the people in question are simply dangerous threats. So it's not unlike Jesus withdrawing from the crowds that wanted to toss him off the cliff. There's a time when you move back and say, if I, if I steadfastly dig in my heels that I'm going to engage with these folks, what I'm discerning is only bad things are going to come from it. And there are times when you need to step back and say, I don't think I have grace in this moment to make, to make a difference. So that's appropriate. That's reasonable. You need to, you need to feel free to understand that. Uh, the bad version of moving away, on the other hand, has to do with our being motivated mostly by seeking to serve ourselves instead of seeking to serve another. Uh, we do need to be willing to be uncomfortable at times. Um, and we might have more self-love in mind than the love of Christ that we're called to. Um, we are, after all, eternally grateful that Jesus didn't consider us to be too big a hassle for him to be uncomfortable in coming to serve. So we need to search our hearts. We need to, we need to, um, to see anger, uh, disgust, uh, arrogance, pride in our own hearts. Uh, search them well so we make sure that what we're not doing is moving away from people motivated by the wrong thing. Now, the opposite of moving away, of course, is moving toward. And there are good and bad versions of that as well. I'll start with the bad version. The bad version of moving toward someone is an aggressive 
an angry attitude that's more akin to wanting to defeat someone than it is to serve them. We don't want our conduct to be looking more like today's political talking heads on the, on the television than looking like Jesus. Um, are we called to hate our enemies and to defeat them or to love them? So we don't want to go toward people with this kind of attitude of I'm coming to defeat you. The good version is fruit of a heart that is desiring to love others in whatever state of lostness they may be in. And so it's a settled conviction that the Lord has given us grace to love others and to seek to employ that. Now that's a really important thing to think about um, because in the end, what can happen with us is when we have these times that are difficult, that are kind of horizontal, difficult things, it's, it's a difficulty between me and another person, we can end up kind of just parking in this horizontal area. And in the end, what that usually results in is one party is very settled in their ideas, and the other party is very settled in their ideas, and conflict uh, uh, ensues, and that's that. So what's important to remember is that it begins with pursuing the Lord and his grace. So before I ever engage in a horizontal kind of engagement, I want to make sure that I'm engaging in a vertical thing. First and foremost, what I want to do is I want to appeal to the Lord, show me the way in which you would have me walk. Give me grace to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And as I walk in this humility and grace, all the kinds of fruit of the Spirit kind of things that come from his interaction with us, then what I can do is say, in the end, Lord, I'm going to leave the result of what happens with that up to you. You, Lord, are the only one who changes the heart of another. I don't do that. I don't argue somebody into the kingdom. I don't argue somebody into a heart change. Only the Lord can do that. But the Lord may use me with the grace that he provides and so what I want to do is I want to say, first and foremost, let me pursue after the grace that the Lord may give me and then walk horizontally in light of that. Does that make sense? All right. Well, I think Ephesians 4, uh, beginning with verse 17, pretty well encapsulates uh, this, this idea of read, resist, and reach. Let me, let me read this to you and make a couple of comments along the way. This is Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay, so read the culture, read what's going on. Understand that what's going on primarily is there's a difficulty that they have with the living God. So we want to read that well and understand that God sees that there's something that's not quite right about the way that they're thinking, and we want to discern that. 
So they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And here's where the compassion part comes in on our, on our part. But that's not the way you learned Christ. We didn't learn Christ through those things, did we? We didn't learn Christ through being engaged in worldly things. We, were, we learned Christ because God had mercy upon us and acted in our lives. Not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. It's only in him that we learn to, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's only because God had mercy on us and acted in our lives that these categories are something that's a reality to us. The whole idea of me putting off my old self and putting on a new self is only possible because God had mercy on me. So that, that humbles me. That teaches me that it's not because I'm a better person and that I grit my teeth and, and by the force of my will decided to change myself. It humbles me to recognize that I needed the grace of God or that's exactly how I would be or some form of exactly what, what the world uh, uh, proposes for me. I need to understand that and walk in humility in that. So, given that that's true, now here's our mission and the manner that we, that we carry it out, picking up at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Here's the reach part. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, Paul had been talking about the building up of the church in Ephesians 4, but here he really has shifted uh, and, and, and moves us to consider our general conduct in the bigger world, you know, even outside of the church. So what you see is read, resist, and reach are all in there, aren't they? So we do discern that the thinking of the culture is futile and alienated from the life of God. And they have given themselves over to sensuality, etc. And so we do put away falsehood, not in anger or arrogance, but, but in grace. Having compassion that, that what they need is they need the grace of God that will change their hearts. And if we think that way, guided by God's grace, we can extend the very grace of God to these people and please the Holy Spirit as we do so. So the greatest pastoral word I can give you is to think very carefully first about how to walk in the way the Lord is calling us, loving and honoring him with our fealty, and then watch how that affects our engagement with other people. Move toward them as appropriate and hope that the aroma of Christ that you bring 
will affect them as you do. Or put another way, consider the vertical first and then the horizontal. And that helps keep us from error and blundering and it gives us satisfaction that we are walking in the way he would have us go. Amen? Amen. Let me uh, pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll go, and we will, we will do some worshiping. Lord God, thank you for these times that we've had together. Thank you that you have um, you've not left us just wondering how to walk in a strange new world that, that confuses us at times and, and, uh, and leaves us just wondering how to how to walk next and, and where this world is headed. Uh, your people have always lived in a context of a fallen world. This is just our expression of it. So uh, let us not be uh, fearful. Let us instead be people who are who are uh, filled with, with grace, that our faith would be built, that you will give grace to us to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And may we be salt and light in this world that needs it so much. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.